you've got your Bibles, however you access your Bibles, you can go to Isaiah chapter 9, and uh, we're finishing up a series today on uh, this idea that there are these simple, the simple word that actually is a, this incredible, amazing story. And uh, it's the simple word, Messiah. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of what Messiah and what it means. And when you go back to Hebrew culture, it was, a, it was an expression of hope when people were downcast, when they were feeling like God has almost abandoned us or what's going to happen to us. They would come to one another and say, don't fret, Messiah is coming. They would, it was just a word of hope, an expression that one day things will be different. And that's really what we celebrate here at Christmas, is this concept, this mentality that our whole lives have been turned upside down. What was hopeless, in a moment of hopelessness, we now can experience hope. Where we were desperate, we now find joy. Where we were feeling unsettled, we can now have peace. It is this incredible truth that Messiah is not coming, but that the Messiah has already come, and we are living in the beauty of that. In the last two weeks, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this concept of the Messiah, that he was both a child and a son, that he was fully human. He was a son. He was born. He walked this earth, but he was also a child of God. He was fully God, this marriage of God and man that walked physically on this earth. And how supernatural that sounded, how out of this world that sounded. But the fact is this, for true salvation to come into our lives, it doesn't come from ourselves. A drowning man cannot save himself. He needs help from an outside source. And salvation came when God came from outside of human understanding, outside of the human way of thinking, and interjected himself into this world. He was a child and a son. And then last week we talked about the, the character of this Messiah that we found in Isaiah chapter 9, where he said he was this mighty God, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God. These four nicknames, basically, of Christ that were descriptors of who he was and what he was going to accomplish. That he was full of wisdom. He was full of truth. His protection as a father was unparalleled. His strength was heroic in nature. This amazing character of Messiah. And it's this amazing story. When we, when we see Isaiah foretell it, and we think about it, and we think about what could be if this guy, this true, this Messiah actually came, there's incredible hope in that. It's incredible joy of like what could be. And now, as we look in verse 7 of chapter 9, we start to see if this is actually true, what's the consequence in our life? What's the consequence for our world? Because there are consequences. You know, we can act like sometimes that we can ignore reality. We can say that certain things don't exist, certain, you know, it's just not true. We can act like gravity doesn't exist. We can believe with all our heart that gravity does not exist. But if you go and jump out of a plane, you're going to experience gravity, whether you believe in it or not. You're going to experience the effects of gravity. And many of us may sit in here this morning and you go, you know what, I'm just not sure about this story. 
this Jesus. You talk about the Messiah's coming, and you talk about that it's Jesus, that he was God and man, that he was all of these incredible characteristics. And I believe it's truth, and I believe truth has played out over history to show that. And we can disagree and we can ignore it, but there are still consequences that we're going to see in our life and the life of this world that play out. If this is true, then this will happen. I grew up, I love to read. I don't know if you guys remember these books. There were these books that you could buy at our little book fair where you would start reading on page one and you get to the end like a couple of pages and it would say, all right, you have to make a choice. If you want to do this, turn to page 52. If you want to do this, turn to page 86. And so you would make your choice. You would turn to 53 and start reading it. And then you would get to another choice. And it was always, if you want to do this, then do this. And it was a story that was playing out. And I would go and read these things. I would mark them up like, okay, I've already taken that trail. Where's this one going to end up? And I would figure out all the different ways that this story could end. And the truth is this. We are living in this post-idea that if Jesus is Messiah, then there is this incredible consequence for us as people and a world. So let's look what Isaiah says here that that should be. Isaiah 9, 6 or 7. I'll start in 6 again just to recap. And it says this. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here's the key. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom. The increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. You know what? Our world experiences consequences all the time. There are consequences to the actions of mankind. There are consequences to elections. There are consequences to new laws and legislations that play out in our life specifically. There are consequences to wars, to ceasefires, to treaties. We see these literally play out in the news in front of us. There are consequences even to the small decisions we make every day in our lives. What we wear, what, what time we leave the apartment, whether we catch a subway at the right time or not, we all have these small momentary decisions. If we do this, then happens. Then this happens. So wouldn't it seem that when the creator of the world tangibly interjects himself into human history, that there are going to be some major consequences. Something that has lasting impact for the world. And this is what I want us to spend our time talking about today are these lasting impacts that are not just general, not just like joy to the world, peace to the earth, but they're also very specific to you and to me. If Jesus is Messiah and the Messiah has come, there's consequence in my life. And Isaiah lays these out here, and there are three of them that I want you to see this morning. The first one, it says this. It says there will be an increase of his government. The first impact is this, is that there'll be submission. There'll be submission. As we will begin to recognize the Lord as the ultimate authority. If there is a God, and if God has come to this earth, lived a perfect life, sacrificed himself for our sins to bring reconciliation between man and God. If he has solved the biggest problem in the history of mankind, then he is the authority. He is the one we submit to. It isn't enough. I want you to hear this. It isn't enough to just recognize God as an authority, but we must recognize him as the only source of authority. 
He is the ultimate authority. Part of the challenge of becoming a follower of Christ is understanding this concept of lordship. Submission means placing Christ as Lord. If you've been around church at all before, you've heard this idea of Jesus is Lord. We hear it at Christmas all the time. I don't think any of us in here, many of us come from different cultures, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I don't think any of us in here have actually lived tangibly under the lordship of someone else. Like we, our parents sometimes act like our lords and like lord over us, but we actually actually lived in a actual lordship relationship with someone. But people would understand this in this day. People would understand this back a thousand years ago when lords were an actual thing. We watch TV shows all the time with this lord pledges to this and that. that There's actual meaning in the relationship of lordship. And let me tell you what that means. The title lord actually carry great significance. To submit to a lord, here's what it means, is that you considered his authority absolute and beyond question. When the Lord of the manor said something, when the Lord of the house said something, it was the law. It was it. Maybe you disagreed with it in the back of your head. Maybe you didn't understand fully why he was making that decision or why she was doing that. And you would go, but it's the law. It was the way it played out. It was ultimate, absolute, beyond question. Your loyalty to them transcended all other loyalties. If you were part of a Lord's manor, you were part of the Lord's area, your loyalty was first and foremost, to them. You could be loyal to other things, but if it came into conflict, your loyalty, number one, utmost, was to that Lord. But it also meant this, that your commitment and obedience to him covered all areas of your life. All areas, not some areas. Your relationship to this Lord impacted where you lived, what you ate, when you went to sleep, when you woke up in the morning, how you spent your money, It impacted every area of your life. And you go, why in the world would anybody want to live in that kind of relationship? Why would you want a Lord in your life? Because here I want you to see this. It wasn't just something you submitted to. It was also a relationship that you received some incredible things from. If you were part of the Lord's manner, it meant that you had access to his power. His wealth, his strength, his army, his city walls were yours. If an attack came, you were invited into safety. And all that he did, he protected those that were under his lordship. So you received his power, but you also received his authority. When you were sent out with the authority of that Lord, you spoke with his authority. You carried his power. They had these signet rings that they would, and if you were given the signet ring of that Lord, it meant that you are basically his spokesperson. You spoke with his full authority. People listened to you as if the Lord was speaking. But we were also given his presence, meaning that the Lord knew who his subjects were. He knew their name. He knew their families. He knew what was going on in their life. He was involved with this group. A true Lord didn't sit up in a castle in a room and just make pronouncements from a window. He knew his people. He walked with his people. The most powerful lords were those that had great relationships with their people. And so when we talk about submitting 
and having Jesus as Lord, that there's a consequence to that. We're not talking about that we have to give up everything to follow him. It means that as we follow him, we have access to everything. We, we get so caught up thinking that what we have, what we possess, is so meaningful, so, so important. But the Bible teaches us this. Our righteousness, our very best, compared to what God has, what the Lord has, is literally like filthy rags. It's like it has no value. It doesn't mean that it doesn't care about what you have, but it just means he has so much more for us. And one of the hardest things of lordship is realizing that what the Lord has for you and what the Lord wants for you is so much better than what you're already holding in your hands. And to set that down and to pick up something more, that's an act of submission. Submission is not setting down and becoming a beggar. Submission is actually setting it down and picking up the better. That's what submission is. And we live in a culture where the word submission is a horrible word. We run from it. But the true power of the Lord, it can't be experienced without submitting to him. So the question I have for you is this. Do you view Christ as one authority in your life or as the only authority in your life? Is he the one and only or just when it's convenient? Because true submission is saying I lay it all down and I place my full loyalty to you. So it says of the increase of his government, of the increase of his lordship, he will be expanding his lordship in this world and in our lives. But then it says there's another impact. It says of the increase of his government and of peace. The second impact in our lives in this world is not just submission, it's reconciliation. Reconciliation. We will become instruments of peace. So you, you take this idea of lordship and you're like, okay, I, I mean, I'm in on my Lord. Like, go tell me where to fight. Like, who, do, who do we get to go conquer next? And this is not a kingdom of conquering. Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom that came to conquer. It's a kingdom that came to reconcile, to bring peace. To find the next kingdom, to find those that are not in the kingdom, and to go and bring peace to them. There will be an increase of his peace. Now, I think you know this, but I'm just going to say it. Peace doesn't happen naturally. It's not our natural state. We're not born peaceful. If you've ever been around a newborn baby, you realize they are not, they may look peaceful when they're sleeping, but as soon as they wake up, the peace is gone, right? I mean, the sounds that this small little child can make is, is amazing. The smells that can come out of this child can be overwhelming. The demands that this child, without even using a word, can place on you can just be phenomenal. A, a baby, you, you pray for moments of peace, when you have a newborn baby and you cherish those moments of peace, that is not the norm, though. And that's true for most of us. Most of us, we don't walk into new situations and we, we bring peace. We actually can bring enmity. We can, bring, we can create conflict. Think about it even when we look at ourselves and others and God. When, when we look at others... What is it that we see first? Do we see what's most alike or do we see what's different about each other? You know, we actually begin to think that, that we're better because they're different than me and what I am is better 
than them. Or we look at God and we see the authority that God has, this lordship, and we go, you know what? I want to be Lord. I want to have that authority. And so we put ourselves in enmity with God. Or we, we look at ourselves and we see the brokenness of ourselves. We can see the truth of ourselves better than anybody else. And when we look in and we see how broken and how hypocritical we are as a person, we don't even have peace with ourselves. We look at ourselves and we see shame and guilt. Peace is a difficult thing to obtain. But in the new kingdom of Jesus, peace is not only extended to us, but we have the opportunity to become people that extend peace to others as well. We become proponents of peace, instruments of peace. But I want you to understand every decision, every circumstance, every relationship we walk into, we have two choices. We can either be an instrument of peace or an instrument of enmity. Where we come and bring conflict and anger. Our choices have consequences, both good and bad. Choices we make of whether to bring peace or enmity into a situation will have consequence on us, our relationship with God, and with others. And I want to talk about this for just a minute because this, this is easy to like, yeah, yeah, we, we should be nicer to one another. All right? That's the lesson of Christmas. Let's all just go smile, be a little nicer to each other. That wears off by about December 27th, right? It wears off when the sales hit December 26th. People at the stores fighting each other. That It's nice maybe even on Christmas Day for a moment, but peace doesn't last. And why is that? And I think because we think two things are bad when they're not. And the first thing I want you to see is this. Different isn't bad. Just because someone is a different color, ethnicity, gender, whatever, doesn't mean that what you are is better or worse than what they are. But we tend to grade ourselves and others, don't we? We look, okay, this person is this, I'm this, which is better? Who's got the upper hand here? Maybe it comes to what job you have, where you live, what kind of money you make, where you're from. All these kind of things. We see different, and we start creating categories. Different isn't bad. It's just different. You don't have any superiority over anyone else. If you look around this room, we have many different cultures and ethnic backgrounds in here. And I'm going to tell you, you can go, there's a place that you can go in this world where you are the minority, where you are the different one. You are the one completely out of place. I was in Kenya not too long ago doing work with Care for AIDS, the ministry that we connect with over there. And I was walking through one of the slums of Nairobi, and I was the only, me and the two other guys that were with me, we were the only white-skinned people in that entire neighborhood. Some of the children there, it was the first time they had ever seen somebody that was white-skinned. And they would literally come up to me, and they would try to rub my skin and rub the white off to see the black underneath. And they could not understand what this was. They didn't understand the hair on my arms. It was like they were in shock. I was a complete minority. I was the different one there. They called me Mazunga, which meant the lost one. Like, you don't belong here. That's basically when they called you that, they're like, you don't belong. That's, that was the nickname for me. And so we, we can all go to places in this world where we feel completely different. The outcast, the, the abner, abner, abneration, and that's not the word, the ab, abnormal one. 
But here's the deal. Just because you're different, maybe you're the different one in this culture. Just because you're different doesn't mean that you have any less value than anyone else. Our value isn't found in the skin or who we, what we look like. It's in our bank account. Our value is found in the fact that our Lord loves us. Not that we did anything to deserve this or own it, or to get it from him, but he just chose to. So different isn't bad. And then I want you to understand this. Diversity isn't detrimental. You know, it's actually usually advantageous to have diverse aspects and diverse thoughts in a room. When we all think the same, act the same, only have one perspective, guess what? We're missing something. Diversity isn't bad. And this is why peace is an incredible thing. And this is why peace is so difficult to get because here's what we do. We tend to exaggerate our differences instead of embracing our differences. Instead of saying, we need different outlooks, we say, I want everybody to think like I do. So that it's simpler. That's the way we get to peace, right? Is to have everybody think the same way. That's not true. Peace comes when those, even from different perspectives, are able to walk hand in hand, arm in arm together. That's what we say as a church. We're about unity, not uniformity. We don't want everybody to exactly think the same way, do the same thing, have to express your love for Christ in these four ways, and that's it. But we do have unity over the fact that we are loved by God and we should love others. We should love God and love other people. That's our unity. But you have, we, have, we don't have uniformity in how that expresses out in our life. So being different isn't bad. Different isn't bad and diversity isn't bad. And here's why peace doesn't spread. It's because we hold on to peace because we don't think other people deserve it. They're too different or too diverse than me. And so my question for you today is this, in this moment, is there anywhere, person, group, or people, or circumstance, where you are, te- are intentionally withholding peace? Is there anywhere where you are intentionally withholding the peace? If so, then you're not bringing reconciliation. You're not increasing the peace. Can I tell you the best way to experience peace in your life is to make peace with other people. Not wait for them to make peace with you, but for you to be the instrument of peace. There's a third impact, and we see it in the last part of this. It says that the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. There will be no end, which means this translates into compassion, that we will actually seek the welfare of other people. We don't just seek peace with other people, but we actually now begin to seek the welfare of other people. Do you see this, this journey that he came in and he says, I'm the authority, submit to me, and you're going to pick up something so much more than you ever expected in your life. And as you do that, you're going to walk into relationships, you're going to walk into circumstance, and you're going to find them unpeaceful, you're going to find enmity there, you're going to find things out of balance, and you're going to be the one to bring balance there. But not... Just, that's not the end product. It's not that you just bring balance. Once you've brought balance, you start to be the one who looks out for the welfare of those around you. Just like the Lord looks out for your welfare, you begin to look out for the welfare of other people as well. Think about it for a minute. Every person in this room is just as qualified as anyone else to be a recipient of God's peace. Every person in this city 
every person in this world, every race, every ethnic group, everybody from every political party or ethnic background, we are all just as qualified to receive God's peace. And it's not because of any qualification that we have or anything that we've demonstrated. It's because of the one who is giving it to us. God did not put any qualifiers on who would have the opportunity to experience peace with him. He didn't say only this group. As a matter of fact, when Jesus came, it was an expansion of God's peace to all the world. And you know what we often do? We're like, okay, we'll bring peace, but now I want to be Lord. I, I want to keep everybody. I'm, I'm more concerned about my welfare than the welfare of other people. And we start using relationships to expand our kingdom instead of spreading the welfare of God to expand his kingdom. And so I just want to give you some thoughts of how do you and I actually seek the welfare of other people? Because that sounds nice. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll go out. I'll do that tomorrow. But as soon as, like, you get on the jam-packed subway at the next stop and somebody else wants to get on, you're going to be like, no car's full. You know, you're not, you're not getting on with me. You're not seeking the welfare of that person, even though somebody gave you welfare at the last stop. So how do we do this? One is this. Never use others to obtain personal gain, influence, prominence, or power, but always use your personal gain, your prominence, and your power to invest in the lives of others. So never use others to make yourself prosper, but use your prosperity to help others grow. That's the biblical model of life. You say, well, that's not capitalism. I don't, I don't care what system we live in. God is not defined by a system of government. God has called us to live as people who have experienced his grace and his goodness to go out and share it with other people. God has given you more than you can handle. Scripture says that God has poured his grace and love into your life so much that he has pushed in there, he has pressed it down, he has shaken it, he has filled you up so much that it is still overflowing. That what you actually give to other people is out of the abundance of what God has given you. And so don't use others to try to fill your cup up more. Your cup's already full from what the Lord's given you. Use the abundance of what the Lord has given to help fill other people's cup up that haven't come into that relationship yet. Second thing is this, is treat all men and women with respect and that they are valuable, unique creations of God and are bearers of his image. When you look around the room, you don't start to see people and the difference and why you would diminish somebody, you start looking around the room and you're actually in the, in the city and you start seeing people that are the image of God. People that are loved by God, that are valuable to God. And then the third thing you do is this, is you begin to introduce them to the Lord, to the Christ, and to his kingdom of grace and peace. You meet somebody that's outside of this lordship and what do you want them to do? You want them to experience it. You want them to come underneath the protection and the authority of this Lord so that they can let go of their filthy rags and pick up the gold and the riches of the Lord. That's how we do this. And so my question is this. Does your heart beat for your own welfare or does it break for the welfare of others? Does it beat for your own? Like, what else can I get today? Or when you look around, does it break for the needs of others? This is the consequence of the Messiah. It's not just a Christmas party. 
not giving gifts, exchanging wrapping paper. It's not, you know, eggnog and Christmas cookies. I love all those things. But the true consequence of the Messiah is not a season on the calendar. The consequence of the Messiah is that our lives have been radically changed. We've submitted to the authority of the Lord. We walk into every circumstance and bring peace. And once the peace is there, we start to look out for the welfare of other people by showing compassion. Are you submitting? Are you reconciling? Are you showing compassion to those in need? Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me?